Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning, Jim. We're continuing on in our Sunday morning series called the Summer of Psalms. And in our psalm this morning, Psalm 73, written by a man named Asaph, it begins with a declarative statement of faith, God is good. Quickly followed by a reflection of a time when he really struggled to believe it. He writes, for I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. We're going to see our psalmist in a real crisis of faith over how unfair life appears to be. Before we jump into the psalm, let's go ahead and let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit this morning, Lord, that the words that I preach uh, would be from your mind and your heart, Lord. Give us deeper insight into the struggles of faith that Asaph wrote about in, his, in the word and how he went from that crisis of faith to a joyous and wondrous revelation of a deepness of your love and your grace and your mercy in his life. Lord, may those truths penetrate our hearts, fill our minds, that we might leave here this morning with a greater realization of all that you are and all that you've done for us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor and author uh, Mark Buchanan writes, In the town where I live, a little girl named Caitlin is friends with my daughter, Sarah. They attended the same preschool, and I would often find them playing together. They were two vigorous, joyful four-year-olds who were prankish, giddy, quick to laugh, dance, cry, and sing. One day, Caitlin's mother came to pick her up, and something went terribly wrong. When she arrived at the preschool, Caitlin was standing in the playground looking at the ground. She called to her several times with no response. As she got to her, she lifted her head with her hand to see Caitlin's eyes were vacant. She tried to lift her head with no response. A teacher came running over. Caitlin went limp and her eyes rolled to the right. The paramedics arrived and she was taken to the hospital via ambulance. The test agreed with the initial diagnosis that Caitlin would be fine, but Caitlin wasn't fine. She grew more pale. Her speech started to slur. She would fumble things and stumble off and she fell down a lot. The doctor kept ordering tests. Then one day Caitlin's parents got the news they both dreaded and expected. Caitlin is dying. She has Batten's disease, a rare and incurable congenital degenerative Neural disorder, it means her muscles are petrifying. They're now as hard as wood and will soon be hard like stone. They will harden until one day she can no longer swallow or breathe. Caitlin's parents, brother, grandparents, her aunts and uncles and cousins, her friends and church family will all watch Caitlin die a slow death. Caitlin's mother is a Christian and has drenched her bed with tears. She has beating her fist, bloody, on heaven's door, trying to get the owner to open and give her bread. She attends a church full of godly, caring people. They pray. Other people at other churches pray. They pray for many things, strength for the parents, wisdom for the doctors, comfort for Caitlin, but mostly they cry out to God for her healing, and God hasn't answered that prayer yet. In the meantime, the people who live next door to Caitlin won the lottery, more than $600,000. He says, I know almost nothing about the people except that they have a lovely house, which has been completely paid off for a long time. These people, from what I understand, had a good, abundant life even before they won the jackpot. Nice cars, nice clothes, nice private schools, nice vacation destinations, and they won the lottery. 
He says, I don't know why they purchase lottery tickets or if someone purchased a ticket for them. I don't know if they pray or even if they're Christians, but they won $600,000 as a little girl named Caitlin lied in a bed one door down from a rare curable disease, and she is dying. Life isn't fair. There seems to be a lopsidedness and randomness to its distribution of windfalls and pitfalls. Who will get sick? Who will get rich? Who will be beautiful? Who will be disfigured? Who will be a genius and who will be mentally challenged? Who will live a ripe old age of 90 and who will die as a child? Is there any sovereign logic to this? And you have the age-old question, if God is good, why do wicked people or people who reject God prosper? While those who are devoted followers of God have trouble, hardship, and pain. Asaph knew this experience well and wrote about it with refreshing honesty and disarming frankness. Go ahead now and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 73. And before we jump into the psalm, I want to give you a little background into the life of the author named Asaph. The 150 psalms in our Bible have been divided into five books, and Psalm 73 is the beginning of book three, in which the first 11 psalms have been accredited to a man named Asaph. His lineage was from the son of Berechiah, a door holder in the sanctuary of God. I guess he was kind of like a greeter. He was a descendant of Gershon, a son of Levi, which became one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the Levites were defenders of the Mosaic law during the Exodus, and they were given the duties of singing psalms during temple service, constructing, maintaining, and guarding the temple. They were teachers and judges for the people, and were looked to as examples and resources on how to live a godly life. Asaph had quite a prestigious lineage. He was appointed by King David as music director. He was worship leader for Israel. He was a great singer and musician, and he originally appointed to serve before the Ark of the Covenant with the grandson of the prophet Samuel. He served under three kings, David, Solomon, and Rehoboam. It is also noted in the scriptures that Asaph had a prophetic gift and is why you see messianic prophecies in some of the Psalms he's written. Needless to say, Asaph was a man who was looked up to. He was seen as a godly man of faith. This is the man who, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penned the words we are about to read. Let's go ahead and see what he has to tell us. Psalm 73, 1 says, God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. Asaph begins the psalm with a declarative statement of faith concerning the God he believes and follows. He declares, God is indeed good to Israel and to the pure in heart. When he says God is good to the pure in heart, he's saying God is good to his people. He's good to his children, to those who believe in and follow him. He's in essence driving a stake in the ground where he's decided to rest his faith. He has deep convictions concerning this. He's saying this is foundational truth I have come to believe about God. It's what motivates my devotion, my worship, and my service of him. It's what I teach others. It's what all of God's people believe. Church, do this with me. I say God is good. You say? I say all the time. Amen. That's what we all come to believe. And yet with all of Asaph's background as a deeply godly man and concerning his faithful devotion and service of the Lord, when added to his declarative statement of faith that God is indeed good, Asaph is about to surprise us by taking us on a journey where he reveals there was a time in his life where he really struggled to believe God was good. 
In his heart, he was in turmoil. His life experience and what he saw happening in the world led to a crisis in his faith. He writes in verses 2 through 5, But as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray. For I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die, and their bodies are well fed. They are not in trouble like others. They are not afflicted like most people. And then in verse 12, he adds, They were always at ease. And they increase in wealth. What has led to this deep-seated struggle in Asa's life is what he experienced in his world. That people who have little to no regard for God were prosperous. They seemed to always have easy time throughout their life. They didn't experience troubles. They weren't afflicted like other people were. They lived carefree lives. They had the best of everything. They seemed to always get their way. And everything they touched seemed to turn to gold. And we see that in our world today quite often, don't we? Wealthy people who reject Christ, who have huge bank accounts and investment portfolios, and they live in beautiful mansions and drive the most expensive, luxurious cars. They wear the finest clothes, they have wonderful vacation homes, and go on the best trips to the most exotic places. They eat at the finest restaurants, many of them have fame and fortune, and people love them, they admire them, they think they're great, they think they're cool, they want to be like them, they wish they had the life that they had. And if that isn't enough, they tend to flaunt it. In verses 6 through 8, Asaph says, Therefore pride is their necklace, and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge out from fatness, the imaginations of their hearts run wild. They mock and speak maliciously, they arrogantly threaten oppression. Asaph sees the ungodly flaunt their prosperity as if they are wearing Mr. T bling. You know, those huge gold necklaces at Mr. T. And they, I pity the fool who isn't like me. Look at me. Look how good I have it. Too bad, sad sack, that you aren't like me. Asaph believes that the ungodly, because of the rejection of God while being prosperous, have a cold and indifferent heart about the plight of others. They're willing to use violence or force to get their way. They're self-centered, greedy. They scheme. They, they conjure up imaginations in their mind which have no end. They seek ways to exploit and oppress other people to satisfy their own selfish desires. People are pawns to use towards their own ends. They think they're better and smarter than everyone else, and everyone else are just rubes in the game of life. And wow, I think we can see that in our culture today. All over the internet, as more and more people turn from God and forcibly attempt to remove godly influence from our culture. We can see in our government, we can see in corporations, in educational institutions, those in the entertainment industry espousing this worldview. We see greed and corruption and how people get away with everything. People who are in power, people who are in control, people who are of prestige, people of wealth and possessions. Asaph goes on in verses 9 through 11. He says, they set their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore, his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. The wicked say, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? Their pride, their wealth, influences their attitudes towards God. They mock God and those who believe in him. Your God doesn't matter. He has no say in things. I don't need your God. I don't want your God. I'm doing Great, just as I am. This is what 
led to Asaph's crisis in faith, his crisis of belief. And in verses 13 and 14, he said, Do I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? For I am afflicted all day long and punished every morning. There seems to be no consequences in this life for rejecting God. As a matter of fact, it's just the opposite. They mock God and the things of God and toss their prosperity in God's face. If there are no consequences for being bad and no rewards for being good, and if all I get is one trial and struggle and hardship after another, what's the use in following God? Asaph is reflecting on a time where he was really struggling with this. Have you ever struggled with these thoughts and feelings? As you went through difficult times and maybe started comparing your life to the life of others? God, if you're good to your children, then how can the ungodly, those who want nothing to do with you, prosper? And my life seems like nothing but struggle after struggle after struggle. That seems so unfair, so unjust. I mean, God, I seek you. I love and serve you. I try to obey your word. I give my money and time and possessions to you. I love and serve others. I attend church regularly. And yet I know of unbelievers in my family and in my workplace, in my neighborhood, my school. They are prospering. Nothing ever seems to be wrong with their lives. They never seem to have a struggle. The Jewish culture of Asaph's day had a worldview, a life theology, where they believed if you live right and are devoted to God, he will bless you and everything will go well in your life. If you reject God and live an unrighteous life, God will withhold his blessings and you'll experience hardships in life. And I think it's a formula that crept into Christianity from its very beginning. With a a caveat that if something is going wrong in the Christian's life, then it must be because of their disobedience to God or they just don't have enough faith. That's where the prosperity doctrine comes from today. Asaph may have been giving in to this theology when he says he has been daily punished by God. It must be because of some unknown sin in my life, because otherwise I would be prospering. Asaph, in his crisis of faith, begins to wonder if he's wasting his time following God. It's as if he's feeling, listen God, if following you results in hardship and pain while those who couldn't care less about you prosper, then maybe I should just stop following you. This is a genuine struggle of faith. This is real life stuff. I read about a missionary who returned from a lifetime of self-giving in a Chinese orphanage to enjoy a modest retirement, only to be diagnosed with cancer and swiftly die. I heard of an instance when a pastor who had faithfully served God and his people for 40 years, a year after his retirement, was hit by a car while riding his bike on a sunny spring morning and died of massive internal bleeding. How unfair that seems. Did these godly men waste their lives of devotion, having been robbed of their time to rest and relax and enjoy the years after such hard work, to enjoy their wife and their children and their grandchildren? Asaph questioned this about himself. Is my devotion to God worthless? Am I wasting my time following God? I think this is how many of us experience life in this fallen world. I'm cursed or I'm blessed. I'm chosen or rejected. I'm favored or I'm scorned. 
And though we would like some solid sense that life fits an obvious ethical pattern that is cosmic in scope, in which bad people have bad things happen to them and good people reap good things, we're at a loss to find that pattern operating in our world. I mean, didn't God tell Cain, if you do what is right, it will go well with you? And didn't the Apostle Paul write in the epistles, a person reaps what they sow? If you sow good things, you receive good things. If you sow bad things, you reap bad things. This is how the world is supposed to work, right? Asaph is remembering this bad place he was once in, but now we're about to see a couple of incredible decisions that Asaph had made while he was in this bad place, while suffering in his crisis of faith. These decisions led to what was needed most. What he needed was a revelation from God. Asaph needed to understand truth that extended beyond the temporal world to the eternal. Let's look at the first decision he makes while he's in this crisis of faith. Verse 15. If I had decided to say these things aloud, I would have betrayed your people. So up to this point, his thoughts and feelings, they've only been internal. He hasn't shared them with anyone. And he realized as a spiritual leader, if he would have voiced them out loud in the sanctuary, he could have led an entire generation of God, God's children, into a crisis of faith. Listen, I know that we need people of faith and maturity to share our struggles and doubts to gain a godly perspective. But what God is challenging me with personally is to take Asaph's example and to run to God first. To run to God first with my troubles, to run to God first with my struggles, to run to God first with my anxieties and fears, with my doubts and my confusion. Not to the pastor who mentored me, not to the good friends I've had for decades, Ken, Steve, Dave, or Greg, not to co-pastors Sam, Craig, or Jesse. God is the one who can handle rightly my doubts, my confusion, my negativity, and my complaints. But too often Christians don't do this, nor do they even go to people who will help give a godly perspective. But quite often, they go to people who will confirm and accept their negativity and their gossip. You know, it's that, it's that statement, misery loves company. We, we seek out those who feel the same way as we do, those who we know will legitimize our feelings and our perspective. I hope and pray these are words of instruction for those who struggle with gossip and who pass on negative and critical reports about others. Our words are powerful, and they impact and influence the people for good and for bad. And what a man of character and integrity Asaph showed himself to be. He's in the midst of this crisis of faith. He's feeling negative about the world. He's feeling negative about God. And rather than go to other people and just spout off this negativity and this criticism of people or God or whatever, he instead chooses to withhold it to himself because he knows he's mature enough. He's got enough character to understand that if I pass these things on to others, I could lead others into the same crisis of faith that I'm experiencing now. And I don't want to do that. Sadly, this is not what many former Christian pastors and worship leaders have decided in recent years in their own crisis of faith when they have chosen to what is called today to deconstruct their faith. They do so on social media before thousands, leading many others to a crisis of faith and rejection of God, and that that breaks my heart. 
Every Christian leader and teacher will one day stand before God for every single thing they taught and they shared. And God says we will be judged more strictly and that should be sobering for every person who wants to get before God's people to preach or to teach. This is an incredible decision that Asaph made while in a real deep life crisis of his faith. To not share his feelings with others. It reveals that his faith and his godly character while in crisis had not died within him. And he says in verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless. And hopelessness is always the result of us trying to understand difficult things apart from God. When we try to gain a proper perspective on God, our life, our world, our suffering, with our own understanding. When we take our eyes off God onto the circumstance of our lives and start comparing ourselves to those we believe have it better than us, it's always going to lead to one of two things. First, it's going to lead to envy, which we see here was ace of sin. He became bitter and jealous. His heart became hard. He described himself in verses 21 and 22 as embittered. He says, I was stupid. I was an unthinking animal towards you. Another version says, I was like a brute beast. And we never find ourselves comparing our lives to those who have it worse than us, do we? Envy and jealousy and coveting are a big deal to God. If it wasn't a big deal to him, then he wouldn't have made his top 10 list of commandments at number 10. So envy is one thing that we can go but the other direction as we can go is self-pity. It's important to understand that psalms are often poetic, and with poetry, there can be, with poetry, there can be exaggeration. And exaggeration always comes with self-pity. No one has it as bad as me. No one suffers like I do. Everyone has it better. I have nothing good in my life. And when we allow our hearts to get there, it's when life becomes hopeless. Exaggeration not only comes with thoughts about our lives, but also about others who have it better, especially those who reject God. And this is where Asaph was at. Oh, you know, the ungodly who prosper, they don't have anything bad going on in their lives. They never struggle. But what we never see or what we never look at is what goes on behind closed doors in their relationships or in their hearts as they struggle with emptiness and insecurity and anxieties trying to live life without God. We see envy and self-pity in Asaph's crisis of faith, sins that he repented of. And don't get me wrong, struggling with doubt is part of the Christian journey. It's just what you do with those doubts they make all the difference in the world. This leads us to Asaph's second amazing decision. He says, when I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood their destiny. Asaph needed desperately a revelation from God. Only truth could set him free. 
He needed his perspective to change from a temporal one to an eternal one. He needed to be reminded that God's story does not end with our experiences in this life, but is only complete when we enter the life to come. The second amazing thing Asaph did in the midst of his crisis of faith is he chose to seek God. With whatever little faith he had in the moment, he realized he needed to hear from God. God helped Asaph to realize that his focus was only on what he could see and experience with his natural eyes. He needed a change of focus. And the Apostle Paul spoke of how important an eternal perspective was to the life of faith. In 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, Paul was kind of focusing on all the things that they'd been through and all the afflictions that they had and the struggles and the persecution and the dangers that he went through. And he says, therefore, even though we've gone through so much, we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. What was it that was in God's sanctuary that God used to change Asaph's perspective? What did he use to change his heart? Well, what goes on in the sanctuary? Maybe it was the worship. Maybe it was the singing of some of the psalms that touched his heart and changed his perspective to go from temporal to eternal. Maybe it was God's word that was being preached and the truth uh, that was being preached invaded his heart that changed his perspective from the temporal to the eternal. Or maybe it was the remnants of a blood-soaked and blood-stained altar from the sacrifices that were made there. Those sacrifices of, of lambs in the presence of the sanctuary representing the Lamb of God, the future Messiah that would come to shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sin. And it's no different for us on Sunday mornings. When we come here on Sunday mornings, what is it that God wants to use to transform our hearts? What does he want to do to transform and change our perspective? What does he use and want to use when we walk in here and we're dragging and man, life is tough and we're struggling with things that are going on in our lives and we're going through real genuine suffering and pain and confusion and doubt. He wants to use worship. He wants to use the words that are on the screen and the, the words that we sing of the songs that reflect him and who he is and his goodness and greatness to reach into our hearts and realize that our God is bigger than all of the things that we experience in this world. That he loves us and that he cares about us. And he really is working even sometimes when we can't see it. Or maybe he wants to use the message that comes each and every Sunday from one of the pastors who work throughout the week to pray and to seek God and to try to hear from him to bring something to you that will speak to you, that will give you bigger thoughts of him, that will bring truth, that will invade your heart to lead you to repentance or to increase your faith that you can walk out of here changed and transformed. But he also uses communion because it's the same thing that we focus on every Sunday. The blood-soaked altar that... Asaph saw when he walked into the sanctuary is the thing that we focus on in communion because it's the blood of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who has saved us from our sin, who's given us life eternal, who's given us a God who's actually entered our life and walks with us every step of the way. 
This is what God revealed to Asaph about eternal things concerning the destiny of those who reject God. In verses 18 through 20. Indeed, God, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, swept away by terrors, like one waking from a dream. Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. He realizes the true position that the ungodly, prosperous people are in. Unbelievers may prosper in this life. They may seem to have it all, but what is awaiting for those who reject God is sad beyond belief. Someone once said, this life for the unbeliever is all of heaven they will ever get. But for the believer in Christ, this life is all the hell that they will ever get. I believe that what I have come to understand is that God's definition of it going well for his people is unique and distinct to one who sees it all and who always sees the entire picture, the big picture from beginning to end. His wisdom and knowledge are never limited, and his perspective on this is always right. His definition of wellness for the believer, it's not about health or finances or job security. It's not about unfailing protection from illness and the dangers of a broken world. It's not about life being fair, for if it was, God would be failing us miserably. God's sense of wellness is about his acceptance and forgiveness of us. It's about our redemption. It's about relationship. It's about his presence, his presence for all eternity, a guaranteed presence that is a result of the greatest injustice known to man, the shed blood of his son who died a miserable death on a cross to save us from the curse, to save us from our sin, and to save us from an eternity in hell forever separated from his love, his grace, and goodness. That's why... I, I believe that we can actually sing and believe it from our heart that no matter what is going on in our lives, it is well with my soul. The cross is what proves forever the depth of his love for you and me. Through Christ, he loves and accepts us as his own. We are adopted forever into the family of God and he has prepared a place for us in his eternal kingdom. The proof of his love is not about being spared trials or having it better than unbelievers in this life. You see, Jesus was clear when he told his disciples, in this world you will have trouble. He also told them, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. A servant is not greater than his master. The apostle Peter wrote, do not be surprised by the trials you're suffering as if something strange was happening to you. Scriptures are very clear that followers of Jesus will experience trouble and trials in this life. It's, it's a guarantee. It comes down to having an eternal perspective on these things. In Luke 9, 23 through 25, Jesus said to them, If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life in this world will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. What does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits his soul? What good is it for the ungodly who prospers so much in this life, gained everything the world has to offer, have opulence and success and pleasures and comforts and, and treasures and, and riches galore, but yet they forfeit their soul? 
Can you see how foolish it is for the Christian to wish that they had what they have? It's easy to think how unfair when someone dies in their youth, like the story I shared about Caitlin, or I think how fair it is when a parent or a friend or spouse dies unexpectedly in untimely death. But fairness is not about being spared of trials, and it's not about being spared an untimely or difficult death. It's about being spared the second death. The death of unbridgeable separation from God's love and goodness. A death that at once coldness and burning and oblivion and torment amongst a writhing crowd of teeth gnashers and the desolation of unending aloneness. We've been saved from that. What it came down to for Asaph is, do I envy and be jealous of the people in this world who reject God but have more than I do? Or do I glory in the truth that what I have for all eternity far outdoes and outlasts all this world has to offer the unbeliever? Do you believe that? Do you believe that what you have in Christ and the eternal treasures and promises that can never be lost are better than all the riches that the world has to offer? The right thing that God speaks of here is faith. To have faith in the one who doesn't remedy life's unfairness, but who does something far better. He redeems the world's unfairness, its brokenness, its disease and death. He abolishes it for all eternity and gives us back in eternity sevenfold all the years the locusts have eaten. Let's savor the beautiful words Asaph writes to close Psalm 73. Words that are a reflection of a faith that has been renewed by an eternal perspective from a God who loved him and saved him. These are the kind of words that a worship song could be created from. Words that reveal a knowledge that what he has in God is far greater than anything this world has to offer. Read with me verses 23 through 28. Yet I'm always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me up into glory. He's saying right here, man, it's all about relationship. I'm always with you, and you are always holding my hand. It's like that level of intimacy that he realizes that he has with this God who has saved him. And he says, and afterward, afterward, I know that you're always with me, that you'll never leave me or forsake me, that nothing can separate me from your love that I'm firmly in the grasp of your hand, you're going to take me up to glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. He's finally realized this precious treasure that he's been given in God. And he says, there's nothing on earth that I can desire that's better than you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. He, he's thinking, man, you know, the portions may have seemed a little slim, and, and a lot of people were getting a lot more portions than I was, but I have you, and you are my portion. How can I have more than that? Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I made the Lord God my refuge so I can tell about all you do. And the beautiful thing here is, is I, I can tell all you do. I think it extends 
to people who he meets with in the sanctuary, his fellow believers, you know, I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna tell my fellow brothers and sisters all you do and who you are. But I think it extends even to those, he's not looking at the people who are ungodly, the people who reject God now in this position of railing his fist at them and like, see, I really have more than you. I get it, you don't. But no, his heart has become sensitive and compassionate. And now he realizes the grave condition they're in. They're not in a better place than I am. 